0: Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're in a series studying the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to invite you to grab the Bible, turn to the Old Testament, and lean in as we discover what God's Word says about godly living in 2024. Hi. How are you? It's good to see you. Um... It is Sanctity of Life weekend, I don't know if you know that, but it's an opportunity for us to pray for all the issues related to the abortion issue, and by that I mean we want to pray for uh, our lawmakers, we also want to pray for those who had abortions, we want to pray for those who are considering abortions, we want to pray for uh, parents and all the others who are involved in talking to family members and others around that, and uh, we want to see lots and lots of life. So would you pray together with me? Father, I'm, um, I'm, I'm thankful that we have an opportunity actually to intercede for these dear people. I am even thinking about this morning, there are, there are young women around the world who are considering terminating pregnancies today. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, use your people in a gracious manner to um, intercede for them and to, to be their father so that that won't happen. i like, Lord, I, I don't know how you're going to do that. You surround people with uh, perhaps second-guessing when they on their way to the clinic. Um, I'm thankful, Father, for, for, for life. I'm thankful, Father, that uh, y- your son was fully God in the womb and um, was fully human in the womb, and all of us are fully human in the womb. And I pray, Father, that there would be a real move of your spirit around our country and around the world, Father, to give people that knowledge that that life begins at conception and uh, that the laws would be shifted and change in the states and nationally to reflect that. Um, I pray, Father, for all those who are uh, considering adoption these days. I pray, Lord, that you would kind of fan that into a flame that you would help them to consider it even more, perhaps, than they have in the past. And I pray, Lord, that all of these little ones uh, would find a a home, a safe home. So uh, thank you, Lord, that we get to take at least one weekend of of the year to just reflect a little bit on that and to um, ask you to do the amazing and miraculous in this issue, Father, that seems so perplexing to us. So we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a, I have a theory. Um, I'm, I'm 51 years old now, and uh, I know, don't look it, but I, I'm 51 years old now, and I've come to the conclusion uh, that I have enough experience to have established some firm theories in my mind, and, and one of them after living in the Western world, is this. We believe that stuff will make us happy in the end. But if I had to summarize, actually, the whole worldview of mostly the United States, but lots and lots of other places, as our, our, our opinions and feelings about things have bled throughout the world, that we, we actually believe that Consuming things will bring us true joy. And when we don't experience the true joy from consuming the things, we think we just didn't consume enough of them or the right ones. The goal of this life is largely to build up more comfort and pleasure. That's my theory that what everybody is after is more comfort and pleasure've got, I've got evidence for this. Uh, just a few pieces of evidence um, often we try to tell our, we try to tell our cultural values through our, our movies and uh, even and like all the movies, not just the ones that go on to the Academy Awards. so even Hallmark <laughs> is telling us what our culture thinks and I don't know if you've Ever watched the Hallmark movie? I don't watch them. Uh, my wife and daughter sometimes watch them, and I pass by, and I, watch, I look at them for a period of time. I'm not watching them, <laughs> but I'm looking at them. And there's this, you know, the story in the Hallmark movies is, is pretty standard, and they just kind of repeat it, and it's, you know, a woman comes from the big city, maybe the small town. She meets some guy she used to know. He's a farmer now, or he drives a truck, or... He's, you know, he's a rough, rough and tumble kind of guy. Uh, she falls in love with him and isn't sure, and then she finds out he's a king. And, the, right? <laughs> and she's like, okay, I'm good. And it, it's, it's interesting to me that, that it's just romantic comedies in general, uh, they're always about wealthy people. They're always, it's always wealthy people. Because who wants to watch somebody fall in love with a poor dude? we. We want a a wonderful, pleasurable, comfortable future. All of our retirement commercials are like this. Like Behind the, you know, when they're talking about retirement, Fidelity Investments or whatever it is, and and the scenes that they're being shown while, while we're watching the commercial are you know, it's not people sitting in a nursing home. It's, it's always walking on the beach, picking up shells or golfing or a cruise or whatever. That's, if I'm gonna retire, I wanna have enough money so that I can have the stuff because the stuff will ultimately make me happy. The comfort and pleasure will make me happy. Look, I ride a little scooter uh, around around town. It's not that little, actually. It goes kind of fast. But uh, I, I ride through neighborhoods because I don't want to ride on the main roads. And I ride through neighborhoods throughout our area. And so I, I see people's garages open. I see beautiful homes. I, I see all the toys, the snowmobiles, and the ATVs, and the five-car garages, and the one car that's underneath the the mystery car that's underneath the tarp. I, I, see, I mean, we see all of that and all of it screams that if I accumulate enough things that my life will be taken care of and I will genuinely be, be a happy person. Which raises a question, of course. Is that true? Does a life... Spent chasing wealth, fun, and creature comfort. Deliver as advertised. Um, we are in a series on the Book of Ecclesiastes. This is the second week we're in it, and uh, the Book of Ecclesiastes was actually written to try to answer questions like like this: What's worth giving your life to? Will you be happy with all of the energy that you expend? trying to gain the thing that you you think is gonna bring you ultimate joy, will you, at the end of your life, be able to say, I gained joy out of all that effort? Um, The book actually begins in in the very beginning. um, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, and and this is the famous line. I mean, you don't even need to be involved in church or Christianity to maybe have heard this language before, vanity of vanities says the, the preacher. This language of preacher is, I, I've tried to give you a new language. This is the Hebrew word for teacher, preacher, Kohelet. So I'm using this, this name. It's not a proper name like Joe, but it's a name for you to understand who's, who's talking here. Vanity of vanities says Kohelet. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now you can see the la- these words, it's the same word over and over again. And in Hebrew, it's the word hebel. And hebel basically, so vanity is, a, is probably good, but it doesn't really convey to modern ears exactly what, what, what it means, but probably more like disappointing expectation. Everything is disappointing your expectations. If you want to describe life under the sun in this present world, you will experience the disappointment of your expectations. Nothing will live up to what you expect it to. Let's pray. So you get examples of this. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.10 is a good example. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is is also vanity. this is also Hebel. We expect it to fulfill us, the money and the wealth. We expect that, absolutely, but it doesn't. And that mismatch between the expectation and the reality, it's Hebel. Ecclesiastes 8, similar idea but on a different topic. There is a vanity, there is a Hebel that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked this is a very very cumbersome way of saying that righteous people get what the wicked people should get the wicked people should get all the bad stuff but the wicked people aren't getting bad stuff it's the righteous people that are getting bad stuff we expect it the other way around Instead, there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. The good people who are working hard and doing things and keeping the law are the ones who end up being oppressed. Meanwhile, the people who are stealing and oppressing others are the ones who get rich. How do you explain this mismatch? Hell. This whole week around the office, I've been walking around, and when people complain about something. I was like, "Yeah, it's the, your kind of expectations have been disappointed, huh?" Yeah, totally. Evil, right? This is also evil. So, uh, what we want to do today, and throughout this entire series, is just—it's going to it's gonna be a recapitulation, kind of over and over again, over a, several subjects. Where he's gonna try to prove this point to us, where Kohelet is really gonna be screaming at us. And today, he's gonna be trying to answer the question Does a life spent chasing wealth, fun, and creature comfort delivered as advertised? If we focus in, if you say all of life under the sun, all of life lived this side of heaven is Hevel, okay, if we focus in, if we focus really closely in on, uh, on wealth and money, how, how does that particularly turn out? It's a really appropriate thing for people living in our culture, I would say. So here's what I want to do. And uh, the, over the next few minutes, I want to answer three questions. Ask and answer three questions. One, what pleasures did Kohelet f- try? Second, what answers did Kohelet find? And then third, what conclusion should we make? What pleasures did he try? What answers did he find? And then what conclusions should we make? So let's deal with the first of those. Uh, what pleasures did Kohelet try? Look at verse one of chapter two. He said, I, I said in my heart, so this is Kohelet speaking here. I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This is, this is an experiment. He said, "All right, all right, all right. We're going to find out that if I live my whole life seeking out all of the pleasures that can be had, especially because I'm really rich, will that pay off? Uh, but behold, this was also Van. He gives it away at the very beginning. Hey, check it out. Uh, it's Hevel." I'm gonna tell you, I said of laughter, it's it's mad. This word here is a reference of in, in Hebrew. The, this is the, with the original language is here. The translation is laughter, but in Hebrew, the word actually is used mostly in context of partying. So I, in your mind, be thinking about maybe a dinner party that you really love going and everybody's drinking a lot, or maybe when you were in college, you went to a frat party or whatever it is. That's what he's referring to. He, he said, look, uh, uh, I, laughter Right, the stuff you do on Friday and Saturday nights. It's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? And I underline the word pleasure there because that word is used in context of a a more cultured kind of thing, right? Like the wine bar. So I went to the frat parties, he said, and I also went to the jazz club. I, I did both of the, both of that stuff, the lowbrow stuff and the highbrow stuff. You guys ever seen, we've, of course, we have seen the movie Groundhog Day. We have to mention it every year because it's almost Groundhog Day. Do you, do you, yes? Okay, I'll take your total ignoring of the question as evidence that, that yes. Okay, Groundhog Day, uh, Bill Murray, he is a weatherman from Pennsylvania, but it's actually Woodstock, Illinois. And so he, so, so he, he keeps reliving the same day over and over again. It's, <clears throat> it's Groundhog Day when Punxsutawney Phil comes out of his hole and tells us how much winter there's going to be left. Uh, at first, he's shocked at this and he's something's going wrong. But eventually, he starts to come to grips with the idea that he's reliving the same day over and over again. And the first thing he does when it clicks with him is first thing he does is what, he's bowling with some guys and and he's like, wait a minute, nothing matters. I can do anything. So he gets in a car and with the two other guys and he starts driving down the railroad tracks, playing chicken with a train. And he drives all over the place. Eventually, at one point in the movie, he ends up he eats all the food that he could possibly get at a breakfast. He tries to make sexual conquests over all the women he can find, the beautiful women he can find in the area. He drives punks at, he steals punks at Tawny Phil and he drives them off a cliff. And every morning, Eventually, he gets tired of this, right? And, and the movies, he, he gets tired of all of these things. And eventually, he turns to playing piano and uh, being cultured and learning French poetry and stuff. And the movie is kind of making the argument, hey, if, you, if life is meaningless, don't, don't do just the lowbrow stuff. You will find more joy in the highbrow stuff and helping other people. And then you die and be eaten by worms. Yeah, that's basically what he's saying. He said I, I yeah I did both the rail, railroad driving and and I also did the French poetry. And what I found in the end is what use is it? It doesn't pay off the joy that I thought, thought I was going to get, I didn't get. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. This is a lovely way to talk about how every most college students live their lives. I I wanted to cheer my body with wine. Uh, my, my son attends Louisiana State University, uh, which is known as a party school. He's there, not he's not there for the parties, but uh, I think. Anyway, he, um, so it's known as a party school. There's this place right off the campus called Tigerland. So when we went there, he's like, Dad, I gotta show you this. We can drive by Tigerland. And it, honestly, it's these dilapidated, flat-roofed, like, warehouse slapped-up, corrugated iron gross buildings and some tents all around it is disgusting and I'm like what is this and he said it's dad it's just a beer all it is is just a drunk party that's it every night people come here people live close by to Tigerland so that they can walk to Tigerland get sauced and then come away without having to drive he said that he, but people he 's like people get die almost every year coming across the street because they 're so drunk and people driving around are so drunk it 's ridiculous it 's ridiculous yeah well that's that 's what he's saying i 'm going okay listen i 'm going to go live near tigerland, and i 'm going to experience the tigerland now, the difference of course with Kohel that he's like remember i 'm doing like a, an experiment here, so my heart is still guiding me with wisdom i didn 't get so sauced that i couldn 't make reasonable judgments about whether this thing was paying off or not i got just enough sauced so that i could experience it but not enough that i totally lost my wits and i couldn't make evaluations and how to lay hold of folly till i might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their of their life is this going to work out for me i made great works So I didn't just do partying, guys. I made great work. Specifically, I built houses and I planted vineyards. You guys notice that those are both plurals, right? Like, I I might build a house. But he's like, no, no, I built houses. Beautiful, magnificent, kingly houses. You guys ever been on Zillow? Just for fun. Do you, you know, you go on Zillow or Redfin or one of these apps and uh, wherever I visit anywhere I do this, I want to find out what the houses around there are like, you know, and eventually my mind, you get bored with the three bedroom, two bath house, so you're like, I wonder, I wonder what the best ones, like the most expensive ones are, so you change the search parameters to, you know, over 10 million and, and then you see the houses, Whistler, British Columbia is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been been in my life. And I have found some houses, also one of the most expensive places in the world. And I have found some houses in Whistler, British Columbia that are 50 to 100 million dollars. And they sit 20,000 square feet and they sit on top of mountains and they look down at the valley. One of them had its own gondola, right? Its own ski hill. And in the summertime, it had a three-hole golf course, as you do. That's what he's, this, this is the kind of place he's talking about, right? But more, more specifically, he's talking about the, these vineyards. Oh, by the way, I got to tell you something. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I was watching one of those shows that's the, that's the uh, housing shows, you know, like HGTV or whatever it is. You've all seen these shows, of course, and they're going to remodel stuff. Anyway, this woman's... Taking people through a tour of her remodeled house, and she's like, This is my dream kitchen, and this is my dream bedroom, and this is my She kept using the language as my dream. She gets to a hallway, no, a hallway, and she said, Now we need to stop here because this is my dream hallway. You have a dream hallway? Like you're a little kid, and you're thinking to yourself, What I want in the future is a hallway, and it's gonna look like this it's got a window at the end and a chandelier, dream hallway. Right? He had lots of dream hallways. The whole house was dream hallways. This gives away, though, the picture in your mind that you're supposed to have. You're supposed to think, okay, this is in Napa Valley. This is north of San Francisco, and it looks out on the sea. And he's got this magnificent home with a balcony and he looks down and he's the vineyard just goes and goes and goes for a long time. And people come so they can sip the wine that you make and it's so good and you can sell it for whatever, as much as you possibly can. I own that, says Kohelet. I own it. Your dream home with the dream all way. In fact, I made several of them. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. This is, uh, if you were a king in the ancient world, your, your greatness as a king would be known by how big your garden was and how beautiful it was. It was the sort of the way that, you know, it was the sort of the way that you showed everybody. We, they still kind of did this for lots of, lots of years, even in England, if you go, if you watch Downton Abbey or whatever, you're always amazed at, how are they, these beautiful gardens? <laughs> right, that, that was the kind of showpiece. The house was beautiful, yes, but the showpiece was the garden. If so you go to the Palace of Versailles in France, even today, you will be amazed at the gardens. Well, in this day, that's exactly what happened. Um, they had uh, gardens like that. In fact, uh, the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? This is a, this is a picture that I took when I was there. Um, I'm kidding. It's, I, I didn't take this picture at all. That's not, it's not a thing. It doesn't around anymore. In fact, I was working with an AI generator and this is what it came up when I said, when I said, hanging gardens of Babylon and then in this one and then I, on one time later, I actually tried to put Trump and Biden right here and it showed up. It was like Trump and Garden and Biden in the hanging gardens of Babylon. But you can see the beauty, right? This is, this is what he's describing. Made myself gardens and parks and I'm, I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. What is this? For those of you who know your Bibles, what, does, what, what do these words convey? Uh, fruit trees in gardens. Well, that's Eden. <laughs> right. In fact, the words that he's using here actually are reflected, they're, all, they're the same words that are used in, the, in Genesis chapter 2 to talk about the Garden of Eden. So he's telling you, look, guys, what you need to know is that I... I tried to make paradise with a huge house and the vineyards and all this stuff. I had pools from which the forest, it's not just a few trees. I had a forest of trees. Magnificent. And I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. This is actually a pretty important line for him. Here's why. Because uh, if you are a Hebrew and you are enslaved, you can't pay your bills or anything like that, so you have to kind of, you have to sell yourself in order to pay off your bills, it's kind of like the way we think about, if you, don't fa- eat, you know, if you don't have enough money to pay for the diner expense, you have to go do the dishes. Well, similarly, if you didn't have enough money to pay off your bills, you'd go and be enslaved to somebody, but after seven years, you would always be what we call manumitted, that you'd be freed. Every seven years, Hebrew slaves were fully freed except those who were born in slavery. So if, you're, if you want to have lots of slaves stick around for a long time, what you do is you, you buy some male and female slaves, and they end up having little babies. And those babies are slaves who can't be manumitted. They're people who are in your house for a long, long time. So he's saying, hey, I, had, I, I worked it out. I had servants and slaves everywhere to do whatever it is that I wanted. I had great possessions of herds and flocks. These are the instruments of business in those days. To have a workforce and to have all of the means of production. So he's like, dude, I'm Jeff Bezos. At the biggest company, the best one in the entire world, the one that was making hundreds of billions of dollars, I I was that guy. In fact, I had more of this stuff than any who had been before me in, in Jerusalem. You, you might be thinking in your mind, right, there, oh, there are other people who, you know, you know may, maybe you just didn't try to get enough stuff. Maybe you didn't, didn't try to, uh, maybe there were other ways that you could have had more and that would have made you happy. It's like, no, I, I, listen, I did, I did the most. No one before me. Had ever done this much stuff. I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and whole provinces. Like, I did all, all the money that you could possibly want. And I got singers. Both men and women. Uh, they didn't have Spotify in those days. You know that, right? Um, so, so Spotify. Um, <laughs> so this is the way you could have Spotify. Spotify is that you would actually end up getting male and female singers so that you could end up saying, hey, Siri, maybe they did call her Siri, play whatever, and they'd start singing. It was They were on retainer. So you'd have music all the time, and and he had many concubines, which is a reference to a harem. So if you remember in the Old Testament, there's a story about Esther. There's a big, uh, the, the king... Xerxes gets rid of his wife because she won't do a dance for him. I know, total jerk. And then he goes and finds, see, I need the most beautiful woman in the kingdom to make her my queen. So he goes and he looks for her. And uh, he finds a whole bunch of beautiful women and he gives each one of them a night with him to try it, try it out. Esther ends up winning. But all the others, all the, all the other most beautiful women in the entire kingdom didn't go back to their homes. They went back into the king's harem. And the king's harem existed so the king could pleasure himself with them on any given day, night, whatever. They were sex slaves. You, You think that sexual conquest is the great life? He said, I had it. They were the delight of the sons of men. Like the best looking women. I had all of them. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, with my, my wisdom remained with me. So I, I, the whole time I was making evaluations along. Whenever I read this, I am reminded of, of the richest person I have ever met in my life, okay? Uh, it, was a, it was a guy I was interviewing at a church in San Jose, California, uh, he was one of the nicest men I've ever met. You would never know that this guy was worth billions and billions of dollars. He had just sold his company like a few months before to Oracle Software. And he, he, had, he, he was worth bill, multiple billions of dollars. Uh, he, had fund, he was funding the church at the time. I was like, M- you're, wow, when I found that out. He's a very down-to-earth guy. I was there actually to be an, for an associate pastor position, but they asked me if I would preach a little bit on Sunday morning, and so I was like, "Oh, that's fine, right?" But on Saturday, he came to me and he said, "Oh, I just had an opportunity to open up to me. Do you do you like golf?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, um, Pebble Beach. I just got an opportunity to play Pebble Beach tomorrow morning. Uh, would you be interested?" <laughs> hmm. Yeah, but I don't have any clubs listen, don't worry about any of that. What we'll do is we'll take my helicopter, we'll go to the course, we'll, we'll land, I'll get, I'll get you, I'll buy you some clubs, you can keep them, bring take them home with you, and uh, we'll play Pebble Beach. Oh. He said, are, are you committed to doing something tomorrow morning? And in my mind, I'm like, preaching a sermon, but I kind of don't want to work for this church. So like, uh, yeah, I have to preach a sermon. He's like, well, is there any way out of it? So I, I, didn't, I didn't go with him. Come on. I should have, but I, I didn't go with him. But I, I think to myself, right, this guy had an enormous, beautiful house. He had all the money he could possibly want in his entire life. He was a good-looking dude. I mean, he had all the stuff. I'm like, yeah, this, this is what Kohelet did. He had vineyards and all the amazing things all around him. He surpassed everyone who would ever been before him. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil, the pleasure that I got. And then I considered all that my hands had done. So this is where we shift from what did Kohelet try to what did Kohelet find? You, are, you and I are at this moment supposed to place ourselves with Kohelet on the balcony of the mansion overlooking the vineyards with the ocean in the distance and the sun setting and he's swilling his, his wine that he made himself and he's got beautiful women attending him all around and he's more comfortable than you've ever been in your entire life. He's got a personal chef that makes his own personal Doritos and he's eating those babies and he's looking out at the thing and he's thinking, right. So let's make a judgment about where I am right now in relation to all the work I put in. Has it been worth it? I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and behold, Hevel. Striving after the wind. I was chasing something that I thought I could get that was going to fulfill me, and when I'd reach out for it, it was like trying to catch the wind. Just blew right through my fingers. He's, he's kind of saying, I, I, I was a thirsty man in the desert, longing to find a place where I could get my thirst quenched, and I saw in the distance this beautiful oasis, and I ran to it, panting, and I get there, and it's a mirage. But then I looked to my right, and there was another one, and I ran to it, panting, even more thirsty, and it was a mirage. And I went from mirage, to mirage, to mirage, to mirage, and I've ended thirsty. Hevel. There was nothing to be gained. Under the sun. Kohelet had every earthly thing. It did not satisfy. Nothing was gained. But here's the crazy part. His experiment has been emulated over and over and over again. Uh, Here are some of the wealthiest people who have ever lived in the United States of America, okay? John D. Rockefeller, who is worth, he was the the standard oil baron, right? So you go by Chevron, that's what he first started all those years ago, standard oil. He was worth the modern equivalent of $400 billion. So basically three and a half, four Elon Musks or whatever. He said, at the end of his life, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. W.H. Vanderbilt, the railroad magnate who's worth the modern equivalent of $6.6 billion, said the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, a real estate baron from around the turn of the 20th century, 1900s, he was worth the equivalent of $2.2 billion. He's relatively famous both for his wealth, but also he was the wealthiest guy who died on the Titanic. He said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, founder of the car company, was worth $200 billion modern equivalent dollars. He said, I was happier when doing a mechanics job. Yeah, but we don't know those people, right? They're just, those are old guys. They didn't understand the power of the internet and the majesty of the modern technology world where you could have all this, all this stuff. They don't know what it's like to win a Super Bowl. Okay, Tom Brady. After his third Super Bowl win, there's times when I'm not the person I wanna be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I, I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey, man. This is what is. This is the thing. Why aren't you happier? It's what we're all looking for. I, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think. It's gotta be more than this. I mean, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else what else is there for me? Have you ever been long term fulfilled with any of the purchases you've made? Have you, have you ever bought a new car and been like, I will never want another car in my life? And then a few years later, they come up with one that drives itself, and you're like, I gotta have that one. Give me a break. Cyber truck, guys. I mean, it's a cyber truck. you ever in your life bought something and 10 years later been like, I don't want anything else because this has satisfied me completely? No. In fact, the entire United States economy is built on the fact that that will not happen. And you'll want another one. All of it screams heaven. But we keep trying, man. We love, the, the quote that, that we tend to love is uh, whoever says money can't buy happiness just doesn't know where to shop. Well, it's like, what well, I shopped everywhere. I owned the shops. It was, was evil. I mean, with the, the interesting thing about this, this whole, where we sit, listening to this guy say that and then listening to all these names of magnet, real estate magnets, and Tom Brady and all of these folks who've achieved the things that we dream so much about because they're gonna fulfill us is they're all kind of screaming to us, hey, you guys know when you get it, it's not gonna actually fulfill, right? It's, it's not gonna work out. But we're like, well, I don't know. No, 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 I, I've been there. I know what I'm talking about. I've, I've experienced it. Well, I don't, but have you? Uh, it, it, it would be like somebody coming and moving to Chicago and asking you, where, we're looking for a place to live. Where should we go in the greater Chicago area, in Chicagoland? And you, you say, well, there's some lovely places to live. You could name off the different suburbs and in downtown, this is beautiful. And they were like, well, we were thinking about Gary, Indiana. Is that is that a place? And you're like, well, I just um, well, no, I would, that wouldn't be in the top of my list for for that. And you're like, oh, but we've, we think it would be great. It's supposed to be the best suburb. Woo! I don't know, I don't know. And you know why you're saying that? Because you're like, I've been to Gary. I've been to Gary, and I would not describe it as the best suburb of Chicago. I wouldn't. Oh, we're gonna do it anyway. What do you know? What do you mean, what do I know? I've been to Gary. It's a letdown, right? So, do you wanna shake somebody? Parents, when you tell your kids, don't do that because I did it and it turned out really badly. When you say to your kids, hey, listen to me, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. and they're looking at you going, I don't think, I don't think you wanna grab them and go, what are you talking about? Every mistake I've made in life has been after 10 (laughs) p.m. Don't you know? Listen, I've been there and Caleb is screaming. He's screaming to us, you will not find in pleasure what you went into pleasure to find. You will not find it. What you will find heaven. Okay, so we take all of that and we say, what's okay, so what's what's the conclusion? What 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 do we do then? Okay, so there's this really fascinating thing. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is trying to describe, he's trying to describe the struggling that we have in the present world, but the joys that we'll be as Christians in the life to come. That even though we suffer and have trouble in the present time, in the life to come, it will all be worth it, but, but not before then. It's going to be hard before then. And then Christ will return and glory. So here's how he describes that. He says, for the creation, you know, the earth around you, the, the trees and the bushes and the sun, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, when Christ comes back, what we will end up having is, is in a new heaven, a new earth, and resurrection bodies just like his, and this revealing of the sons of God, the resurrection from the dead, the, is not just something that people long for, Christians long for, it's actually something the entire creation is eagerly longing for. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility. Okay, so here's, here's the crazy thing about this word. <laughs> uh, the uh, Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so if you take the word hevel and you translate it into Greek, and they, they did, there's a version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And you take that Greek word and you bring it over to the New Testament, it's the exact word that Paul uses for futility. In other words, Paul is drawing your attention back to Ecclesiastes and saying the creation was subjected to Hevel. This is the world in which you and I live. Hevel. it does not pay off. It was not subjected willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope... That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage, its hevel, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Or in other words, everything now might be hevel, but with Jesus in the life to come, it will not. Or to put it another way. If we load our frustrating, fallen, futile present with expectations that can only be fulfilled in our fabulous future, we'll constantly be let down. If we load our frustrating, fallen, futile present with expectations that can only be fulfilled in our fabulous future will constantly be let down. You know that in the suburban world in which we live, the promise of the suburbs is that you can have a little heaven on this side of heaven. Like if you manicure your lawn just so much, if you have a garage that you can shut off the entire world and cocoon yourself into a place where everything is clean and beautiful and you have insurance and you take care of all of the details, that you can actually try to construct heaven on this side of heaven. It's no surprise though why the suburbs are filled with mental health problems. Because everybody is let down. Because you cannot get heaven on this side of heaven, heaven you'll have in heaven. Here, you'll experience heaven. Well, why is that? Because this fallen, frustrating world is a knockoff of what the world will be. I was, uh, we went to Las Vegas one time with my my wife and I because uh, we had free airline tickets that were getting, you know, they were going to be discontinued soon. We were like, all right, where do you go? The only place we could afford to go is Vegas. And I was like, okay, never been. So we go to Vegas. We were there for a couple days and said, we should probably go to the Grand Canyon because that's way better. But in the time that we were at Vegas, we stayed at the New York, New York Hotel. Okay, now my sister-in-law lives in has lived in, well, she did live in New York for like 25, 30 years. We've been in New York a lot of times, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. You would have to be a nut job to walk into the New York, New York in Las Vegas and go, this is pretty close. You'd be a nut job to be sitting at home and saying, you know what, I really want to experience New York and so I'm gonna go is I'm gonna go to Vegas so I can see the little paper mache Statue of Liberty they put up, because it's amazing. I'd be like, what are you doing? You're just setting yourself up for a massive letdown. There is a New York. Well, we can't afford it. You will one day be able to go. Why don't you save up and go there and not experience the massive letdown? Guys, this is a knockoff, feudal world where pleasures don't deliver what we think they will. They're meant to point us to the greater pleasure of life forever with Jesus. So let me, fit Tim Keller, who died recently, is pastor in New York City. He uh, died of cancer. And the only way they could communicate with him at the end because of the COVID pandemic was by video. So they do, did a lot of video interviews in his office with books behind him. His body getting weaker and weaker. He was asked, okay, what has your cancer taught you as you're on the edge of eternity? He said, we really try to turn this world into heaven. We're trying to make a heaven out of the earth. And as a result of that, we're always unhappy. What's happened with my cancer is that we've realized you can't make a heaven out of this earth because it's going to be taken away from us. It it jolts you so much into saying, I've got to make heaven my heaven. I've got to make God my heaven. And here's what's weird. When you make heaven your heaven, he said, the joys of the earth are more poignant than they used to be. We enjoy our day more than we ever did. The more we make heaven into the real heaven, the more this world becomes something we're actually enjoying for its own sake, instead of trying to make it give us more than it really can. If we load our frustrating, fallen, futile present with the expectation that only will be fulfilled in the fabulous in our fabulous future, we'll constantly be let down. So. My dear friend, are you let down? Maybe it's because you're not finding in pleasure what you went in to find. Let heaven be your heaven. Let Jesus be your heaven. Only in him will you find ultimate fulfillment. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for this uh, this book of Ecclesiastes, I'm thankful that it, it is uh, so realistic and uh, almost punchy. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen to the testimony of Cohelet as he's experienced these things, help us to not walk away and be fools and consign him to a Trash heap in history, Father, help us to listen to the testimony of so many who've gone before us. We thank you that you've given us money, that we might enjoy life and the things around us that give us comfort and pleasure. We we, we love that, but Father, help us not to load them with expectations that they were never made to fulfill. Jesus, would you alone have those expectations placed upon you? For you will do it. We look forward to that day. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.